You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Now, let's get into tonight's sermon. There's a story of this great religious or spiritual leader who amassed a following um, a couple of years ago or back in the day in the rurals of India. It was said that he could perform these great feats and these great signs and wonders uh, and people would come out to him to see what he was up to and to see if he could actually do these things. Well, one day he, the spiritual leader brought his potential followers to the great Ganges River to prove his spiritual prowess and he said to his would-be followers, I will now show you my power by walking on the waters of the Ganges River. Of course, the crowd murmured and gasped, and they were amazed even at the thought of someone achieving this thing or seeing this feat achieved. And the spiritual leader said to them, all I ask of you is that you have faith and believe in me. And of course, the crowd nodded, and some even said, yes, we believe. The spiritual leader smiled with confidence and turned towards the Ganges River and took his first step, which led him to plunge deep into the waters. He immediately came out of the water, furious, angry at the crowd, and said, which one of you didn't believe? This story is meant to be a humorous tale about false teachers and unbelief, of course, but what's interesting is that many churches and Christians believe that Jesus functions in a similar way. That unless we believe or have faith, then God can't work or God can't move in our lives, that our unbelief is somehow a barrier to God showing up in our life or is an obstacle to God's will. Listen to this quote from a well-known pastor, a pastor from one of these big megachurches, influential megachurches from today. Let's just call him, I don't know, Stephen Fortnite. Um, He says this, the only thing that will stop God from revealing himself to you is your own unbelief. Let me say that again. The only thing that will stop God from revealing himself to you is your own unbelief. So you're telling me that God, the sovereign God who spoke the universe into existence, created everything from nothing and sustains it all, who declares an end from the beginning, who simply wills it and it is so, whose words do not return void, you're telling me that little Stevie's unbelief or lack of faith can impede the omniscient, omnipotent, infinite God. God can do everything except overcome our unbelief, apparently. First of all, how narcissistic do you have to be to believe that you can do anything or have anything that can stop the will of God? This is God, right? Second of all, the Bible completely refutes this notion with examples. There are plenty of times in scripture where God worked or moved despite the people's unbelief. Tell me, in John chapter 11, when who, who believed so that Lazarus could be raised from the dead? Not his sisters. Martha was concerned that the body had rotted for four days. And of course, Mary was too busy crying. It was definitely not Lazarus's faith. He was dead as a doorknob. I mean, right? That's as unbelief as you can get. But yet, Jesus still called him out and 
raise him from the dead? How about in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus and his disciples are caught in the middle of the storm and in the boat, Jesus is sleeping, the boat's about to sink, the, the disciples are crying out for their life to wake up Jesus. Jesus says, peace be still to the storm. And he turns around to his disciples and he says, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? So whose faith enabled Christ to still the storm, to save his disciples? Did Jesus say, sorry guys, I can't calm the storm because no one has, no, no one has faith in me? What does Paul say to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2.13? If we are faithless, he remains faithful or he cannot deny himself. This is not talking about us being unfaithful and God remaining faithful. No, the Greek there is aposteo, meaning to disbelieve or even refuse to believe. Even when we refuse to believe in God, God remains faithful to himself, to his will, to his purposes, to his plans, because his, because his, his sovereign plan for salvation, he will not, he will not deny himself of this notion of God being unable to work in our unbelief is absolutely ridiculous and false and outright blasphemous, really. It makes God incapable, look incapable and, and dependent on man's faith as if man's faith is the batteries by which God's power is revealed. It also shows a lack of understanding of how or where unbelief truly comes from. And this is why it's been necessary for the past few sermons in our study in John to discuss the nature of unbelief, that it's a result of our sin nature, that it's a punishment for sin, that it's, it's deceptive, so deceptive in fact that it, you can be fooled into thinking that you are a Christian when you really are not. Ultimately, unbelief is suppression and rejection of the truths of God. And John explicitly points this out in the next few chapters of our study. From chapter 5 to chapter 7, it's all about the people's rejection of Jesus. The Apostle John makes it his aim for the next few chapters to record why Jesus was rejected by the Jewish people. As we said back in chapter 4, John wants to distinguish between sincere faith and superficial, shallow faith in Christ. And where the dividing line comes to light is the conflict that Jesus has with the apostate, the apostate faith of the Jews. This religion that the religious elite of, of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Levites had perpetuated, had cultivated among the people. That's where the dividing line comes in. We see in the next few chapters how Jesus intentionally draws that line in the sand, even purposely does things to bump heads with the Jewish religious system of his day, all, all for the purpose, again, to distinguish what is sincere faith, what is sincere faith in him looks like, and tearing down this system of unbelief that had captivated the people. For example, in chapter 6, as we'll see, Jesus tells the masses, in order to truly be his disciples, you must partake of his flesh and drink of his blood. This concept alone was a big no-no, of course, in the Jewish faith. They weren't even allowed to eat pork. And Jesus is telling them that you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Talk about a keto diet, right? In chapter 7, Jesus directly calls out the Jews for the hypocrisy in, in keeping the law of Moses, yet disregarding his, his authority uh, as the Son of God. 
He even purposely says things to divide the people, to get them to question what is it that they really believe in their faith. Then, of course, in our passage tonight, we see Jesus directly oppose the Jewish religious system by healing this man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Jesus was declaring war on this system of unbelief, on this religion of unbelief that enslaved his people to sin and gave lip service to God. Similar to how he turned over the tables in the temple, Jesus was turning over the system of unbelief that the scribes and the Pharisees had forced on his people. And what we see in our passage is that Jesus exposes the fallacies of of every man-made, every man-centric religion that seeks to stand in the way of the gospel. We see God accomplishing his work despite the unbelief of of those he's working to convince Ultimately, we see the supremacy of Christ over the man-made religions of unbelief. Now, caught in the middle of all this struggle is the paralytic man uh, at the pool of Bethesda, this, this man that we've been, we're going to be talking about tonight. We see how he ultimately has to decide where he's going to put his faith, where he's going to put his allegiance towards And that's a challenge for us tonight as well. After seeing the the comparison between the religion of man and and Jesus in our passage, the challenge for us is to decide where our faith, where our reliance, where our allegiance truly lies. Is it in the rules and the customs and the traditions that man creates? Or is it truly in the person of Jesus Christ? My hope as we dive into the text is that we would be emboldened, encouraged in the faith that we have by being reminded what we have in our relationship with Christ versus what we would be missing out if our faith was more so in religion, in the customs, in the, in the, the system that, that has been cultivated by man, the traditions and the rules, the man-made religion. So let's dive into our passage this night. Everyone say dive. So let's get to the text again. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you have ever watched anime or read manga, you know that this is called a time jump. Last we saw Jesus, he was in, the, in Cana, having traveled all the way from Jerusalem after celebrating the Passover feast, and now he's gone back to Jerusalem for another feast. The feasts aren't that too close together. So it's not mentioned which feast this was, but John uses this fact to simply note a passage of time. Keep an eye out for this because John uses these festivals and these feasts to denote this passage of time or this time jump throughout his Gospels. Uh, Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. The Sheep Gate was located in the northeast corner of old Jerusalem, just slightly north of the Lion's Gate, the eastern gate, the gate that Jesus comes through in, in the triumphal entry. Um, another thing to note from this verse is the name of the pool, Bethesda, meaning house of mercy, which is ironic because as we'll see, there is not a lot of mercy in this place until Jesus actually comes. Verse 3, in these lay a multitude, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been in, in uh, one man had was there who had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. Sorry, I think I'm missing verse four here. Uh, anyone else have verse four there? 
No, in your Bibles, maybe, maybe check under your chairs. Well, what, what happened to verse 4? Well, in case you're wondering, if you're using an ESV Bible and it's left out verse 4, it's because a majority of the earliest manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, do not actually have verse 4 in, as part of the original text, uh, even a little part of verse 3 at the end. In fact, among the newer manuscripts where verse 4 is included, scribes have even left markings to indicate that this verse was an editor's note or an addition made by the scribes to give a more of a historical understanding or context to, to the passage. And, and, and if you want further proof, the Greek being used in verse 4, if you, if you ever read it, in the, the original text, it's not even the same Greek that John uses throughout the rest of the gospel. And in fact, it's more of a modern Greek. So it, it, there's a lot of evidence to say that John didn't actually write verse 4. It's just uh, a scribe's uh, further note. And, and all that to say, you're missing verse 4 in your Bible, and that's okay. It wasn't part of the original inspired word of John the Apostle, hence why it's been removed. We'll see more sections like this throughout the rest of John's gospel, but understand that it's not without reason. There's definitely purpose for why those verses have been uh, redacted or removed. Um, and, and of course, it's definitely the leading of the Holy Spirit and trying to communicate um, what he wants to communicate through the apostle. And if anything, the missing verse serves more as a distraction, really, at times from the point that John is actually trying to make in our passage. Because as we'll see in the story, it's not about the pools. Verse 4 talks about some angel coming down and touching the pool, and that's why it gets stirred up and stuff. But it's not about that belief. It's not about the pool. It's about Jesus and what he does against that belief system that was already in place. What, he, what, what Jesus does to deal with that religion of unbelief. So uh, all we have to know is that there was the paralytic man at the pool who has been there for 38 years, and here comes Jesus in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So this gives us a little clue as to what was going on at the pool, just enough information that we need in regards to the pool. The water gets stirred up, and there was a belief or a superstitious belief that if you got into the pool first, while it was bubbling over, you would be healed or healed of whatever ailment that you have. Now, historically speaking, the stirring of the water was due to a natural spring that would stir up and bubble over uh, the water at, uh, from time to time. It was, it was nothing supernatural. Spiritually speaking, this was probably part of a pagan belief system or superstition mixed in with the Jewish faith. Because this wasn't part of the Old Testament or, or the Mosaic law, this pool and the angel touching it or whatever it was. This was something that was created by man and served to perpetuate the system of, of false faith. And again, this is what Jesus came to overthrow. See, this man, along with the rest of the sick who had been waiting at the pool, uh, hoping for a chance to get into the water, had their faith in where? In the water in the hope that this spring could heal them. You can, you, you, you can even push it to, to, you can even push it to say that their hope was in themselves. They would be healed by their effort. If they could get to the water fast enough, if they could be the first in the, in the water. 
Hence, again, this was the man's excuse. I tried to get into the water, but someone gets in before me. Their faith was in themselves. Their faith was in the pool. Where was their faith not in? In God. See, this is the foundation of every false religion. Faith in one's efforts, faith in some object, faith in something of this world, and not in the one true God. How do you get what you want? By your efforts. If you work hard enough, if you go on this pilgrimage, if you kiss this statue, if you say this prayer seven times, if you follow this rule, if you abstain from this, if you give this, only then will you get a a right relationship with God or have a blessing from God or get into heaven or get freedom from this, etc. This is, by the way, the blueprint for Catholicism, for Buddhism, for Islam, for Sikhism, for Hinduism, even atheism. It's man's work, it's man's efforts, it's man's self-determination, it's man's autonomous evolution, effort to change oneself. That is the object of their faith. And when you don't get what you want, when you hit a rough patch and it's not going the way that you want, it's always the same answer. You didn't pray enough. You didn't live holy enough. You didn't give enough. You didn't do enough. And when you die and the, and, the, and the balancing scales are weighed and it doesn't work to your favor, it's because you didn't do good enough. Similar to this man at the pool, you didn't get to the water fast enough. That's where their faith system was in. But notice how Jesus is different. Verse 8, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And that once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus simply willed it and it was so. Notice, by the way, that it doesn't say that the paralytic man had any faith or a conversion moment or an epiphany of who Jesus was. John even explicitly says later in a passage that the man didn't even know who Jesus was. This man didn't believe or or have some conversion moment. Jesus simply willed for him to be healed and it was so. Talk about unbelief being a barrier to God showing up or God moving or God displaying his power. No, not the God of the Bible. Unbelief is never a barrier for God. So here's a difference. Here's the difference that we see between the religion of unbelief that this man was caught up in versus what Jesus came to offer uh, to this man and to us. Here's a difference. Excuses versus execution. Excuses versus execution. The only answer that false religions or false belief systems can give you are excuses. Again, you didn't pray enough, you didn't give enough, you didn't attend enough, or you didn't go on this pilgrimage, you didn't get to the water fast enough. Or how about these excuses? We hear this all the time. You're a victim. You're oppressed. You're caught up in the system that's built, that's built to keep you down. Or how about this? It's your skin color. It's what these people did to your ancestors. It's because of this group of people. It's because this system is unfair. People are getting to the pool before you. There should be a system where everybody gets into the pool at the same time and everybody gets healed. Does that sound familiar? False religions or false belief systems are filled with empty promises and fruitless methods for change. The Bible says that Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. 
that it's not by might nor by power, but by the Holy Spirit can we accomplish anything. So to have a belief system based on man's efforts is as ridiculous as promising healing to a paralyzed man as long as he gets into the pool first. How do you expect that to work? Meanwhile, what does Jesus offer? Jesus sees us. He sees our need. He knows our struggle. And at his word, we are healed. God simply wills it. And because he wills it, we can have the confidence that it will be so. That is assurance. That is confidence. A hope that we can cling to. It is a hope not not dependent on our ability or lack thereof to save ourselves, but wholly dependent on God's power to save 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. It's all on God. It's God who keeps us. It's God who sustains us. It's God who preserves the salvation that's been promised to us. With Christ, it's not about our excuses. In fact, the Bible says we are without excuse, exactly. We're, we're all sinners needing a Savior. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It's not about how we were raised or what our parents did or what our ancestors did or even what we do today. It's all about what Christ has done and whether or not we have put our faith in his finished work. Whether or not our hope for salvation and change is in him. False religions give excuses. Jesus simply wills and executes. Let's go back to our passage, verse 9. Or let's, let's, let's do the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, remember when, whenever John refers to the Jews, it's always referring to the religious elites of the day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the Levites, the Sadducees. He says, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So these religious leaders are in the same pool area as as the, the man that was healed. He, he was probably well known, in fact, to everyone there because, again, he's been lying there at the pool for 38 years. Yet despite seeing this once paralyzed man now be able to walk, these religious leaders don't celebrate. They don't rejoice. They aren't happy for this man. They're more concerned that this man was breaking the law of the Sabbath. These religious leaders went straight to condemning this man rather than showing even an ounce of amazement or joy for his newfound ability to walk. And let me tell you, this is often how, how, how false religions work. It's built on shame and judgment and using guilt as a tool to keep their followers in line. Look what, what the man's response is in verse 11. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And and all he could do is is defend himself, defend his actions, and shift the blame to someone else. It's it's not my fault. I was just told to get up and walk. That's why I did. And I just did. I'm the victim here. More excuses. And 
This time it's because of the pressure from these religious authorities, these religious elites. Where, where Jesus saw the man and saw his need and had compassion for him and even helped him, the Jewish, the Jewish religious leaders saw the man and condemned, condemned him all the more. Of course, this is another difference between religions of unbelief versus what Christ brings. The religions of unbelief brings condemnation versus Jesus brings compassion. Condemnation versus compassion. Religions of unbelief will often guilt and condemn their followers in order to keep them in line. You sin, you need to go do penance. You need to pay reparations. And until you do, you're shunned, you're excommunicated, you're canceled from our community. And I'm sure this is what this man was feeling or what he was fearing if he didn't give a reason as to why he was walking around with his bed on the Sabbath. He knew that he would be shunned. He would be, he would be excommunicated from the Jewish faith. Meanwhile, Jesus heals a man who, who doesn't even know who he is, who doesn't show any gesture of faith. Why? Because he has compassion for him. A parallel to this story would be the story of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus recalls how a man on the road to Jericho is jumped by a group of thieves and a priest and a Levite, two people from the religious orders of that day, comes by and does nothing to help the man. They just pass by on the other side. Meanwhile, a Samaritan comes and has compassion for him. It says in Luke chapter 10, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. I love this word for compassion here. The first, the first Greek word I ever looked up is splagnizomai, meaning to be moved in the inward parts, to not just feel compassion, but be moved to action by it. This is the same word used to describe Jesus' compassion towards the lost, by the way. It's what drove his earthly ministry in Matthew, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus demonstrates genuine care, sincere love for people. That's why he came. That's why he healed the man at the pool. Remember what, what, is, what, what, what it said in verse 6. In verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been uh, there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? That's compassion. Christ knowing where we're coming from. You know, if anyone had the, had the right to condemn this guy, it was Jesus, of course. Like all of us, this guy was still a sinner, only deserving of God's wrath, yet Jesus heals him anyways. He shows compassion to him anyways and not con condemnation. Remember what John said earlier in his gospel, John chapter 3, verse 17. He says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus Christ didn't come to condemn anyone, because by God's standards, everyone is already condemned. Everyone who has not believed and put their faith in Jesus is already condemned. 
already on the way to face God's wrath. What Christ came to do was instead show the heart of God, show the compassion of God, the grace and mercy of God to those who are dying and and going to hell. And church, I think we need to be weary of what we as Christians communicate to unbelievers. The world should know us for our compassion, not our condemnation. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, that if you have love for one another. Compassion is a fruit of someone who has truly experienced the love of Christ, or who has the love of Christ. Listen, church, of course, you you know me, right? You've heard my sermons. I'm all for calling out sin, right? We're supposed to call out sin, but even that is meant to be done in love. God changes lives through loving correction, not legal coercion. It's meant to be done in love. We must be weary that we don't fall into legalism and condemnation in our effort to uphold God's truth. That's where these religious leaders were coming from, by the way, a sense of legalism to the Sabbath laws. That's where all religions of unbelief ultimately lead to is legalism. Because if salvation is only attained and achieved via human efforts, then the means in which then that means we need human standards to keep us on track, to protect our efforts. And if anyone breaks those standards, shun them, condemn, condemn them, cancel them. Listen, legalism is not is not about upholding what God has prescribed. It's about demanding what man has preferred. Understand that. Legalism is not about upholding what God has prescribed. It's about demanding what man has preferred. God said in Jeremiah 17, 21, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. That's what God prescribed in order to keep the Sabbath day, a day where we can recall God's faithfulness and rest in His finished work. This is what the religious leaders were getting legalistic about, and what this man had apparently broken uh, because He was carrying the bed that he had been laying on for 38 years. But understand, and what the Pharisees or these religious elites miss is that this man wasn't carrying a burden, he was carrying a blessing. That bed was a symbol of God's compassion, a landmark of God's grace. That thing that would invoke praise and honor in this man's life towards God was this bed, a reminder of how God saved him, how God healed him. But the religious leaders, the religious leaders didn't see that because it was more important for them to uphold their rules and their regulations about the Sabbath. Again, we must not be a people who condemns without ever showing compassion. Contrast that to how Jesus responds in in verse 12. Uh, It it says, they asked him, who who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, where Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. The first words out of Jesus' mouth is is joy and celebration. It's happiness for the man's well-being. There's an invitation even. Jesus says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What's worse than being paralyzed and, and laying beside a pool for 38 years? 
Simple. Not getting right with God. Having sin be uh, what condemns us before God. Jesus invites the man to, to a life that is free from the burden and the punishment of sin. And this is the difference between religions of unbelief and Jesus. Religion offers legalism. Jesus offers liberty. Religion offers legalism. Jesus offers liberty. Jesus offers true freedom. Freedom from the punishment of sin, but also the burden of the law, of legalism, of having the responsibility of saving oneself or of maintaining our salvation. Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what he's talking about here. This yoke, this burden of the law, the standards, the teachings that Jesus has versus what the the Pharisees and the religious system was enforcing. Jesus Jesus was much lighter. He didn't have the burden of legalism. The invitation is to learn from him, to take up his yoke, to take up his teachings, to take up his way to the Father which is easy and light. Paul says the same thing, by the way, in Galatians chapter 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A slavery to legalism, a slavery of having to, to work for your own sins and having to, to try to live a life of righteousness in order to save yourself. Listen, This is what Jesus came to abolish and bring freedom in. A works-based religion where your salvation is wholly dependent on you and your efforts to get right with God. Jesus came to abolish all these superstitious, unbelief things that many world religions have today. That your faith is to be in the things of man, that your faith is to be in, um, in these superstitious myths that is cultivated in these religions. Jesus already did the work. He already lived the perfect life that we were supposed to live. He paid the price that we ought to have paid. And because he did, we can have liberty. We can live in freedom, freedom in him. Again, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And listen, I might be speaking as if you guys already know this, but the reality is many Christians fall into this same trap over and over again. It's like they enter into into the Christian faith through faith and through by God's grace, but then they start to get this mentality that then they they start to have to work for their salvation or keep their salvation together, that it's in them to to make the effort to, to remain saved. But that's not what the Bible says. These religions of unbelief only offer slavery. Slavery to the legalistic demands of a man-made religion. And though these religions are set up as houses of faith, they're actually mortuaries of unbelief. Jesus offers liberty to those who would put their faith, their trust in him. Faith that he is enough, that his work was enough, that he has the power to save. And by his mercy and grace, we are saved. As we close this evening, church, reflect 
for a moment where your faith is? Have you truly put your faith in Christ alone for your salvation? What kind of faith are you exemplifying in this world that we live in? Are we all about the excuses? Well, you know, I was raised this well this way. Well, well, I'll never change. I've always been doing this. And or do we actually have faith that we believe in a God who executes, who wills, and can help us overcome whatever it is that we might be struggling with? What kind of faith are we depicting to unbelievers, to the lost? Is it a faith of condemnation without compassion? Are we, are we always about the truth and the truth and the truth, but never grace? Are we living in legalism or in liberty? In the freedom that Christ has provided for us through his death and resurrection? Are we more so about upholding man's preferences, our own preferences? Are we living in what Christ has won for us at the cross? The story of the paralytic man by the pool at Bethesda doesn't end well, unfortunately. Look what happens after Jesus offers the man freedom from this religious system or from, or from this system of unbelief. It says in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man goes back to the religious leaders and turns Jesus in. He gives them a name as to who to blame. Here's the guy that, that told me to pick up my mat on the Sabbath. It's his fault. After experiencing the grace of God, he went back to the laws of man. Church, I pray that we would not do the same. The invitation is the same as this man for us to put our faith in the person of Jesus Christ and the freedom that he has afforded us. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is a final thought. Anyone know what tomorrow is? Reformation Day. Reformation Day, October 31st, the day that we remember how Martin Luther and the other reformers broke free from the yoke of the Catholic Church, from that religion of unbelief, that religion that perpetuated a salvation by works a salvation by man's efforts. It was the rediscovery of the, the abundance of grace found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not, as, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is what we remember. And I pray, church, that if you struggle in your faith and thinking that you need to live up to uh, the standards of man, 
in order to remain a Christian, understand that Christ did it all on the cross. Christ paid it all. Don't go back to a yoke of slavery, to a works-based faith. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wellspring of grace and mercy that you have poured out on us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for what the cross has provided. Peace with a holy God. Reconciliation with a holy God. We thank you, O Lord, that you are a God who executes, who, 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 who wills, and it is so. We thank you, God, that you are a God of compassion who saw our sinful state, our need for a Savior, and sent your Son to die on our behalf. And we thank you for the liberty that we have only in you, true freedom. We ask, O Lord, that we would live lives worthy of the gospel. You know, O God, where, where we doubt, where we fear, where we struggle, O Lord, with feelings of shame and unworthiness. I pray, O God, that your Holy Spirit, with your grace and your love, would just wash over us once again. Fill us once again. Remind us, O Lord, of the joy of our salvation Remind us, O oh Lord, again of what you have done out of your great love for us. I pray that you'd help us stand, help us to persevere, O oh God, under the trials of this life. And that, God, you would put in us a deep conviction, a desire to propagate the gospel, to preach the gospel to the lost, to tell them about the hope, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us, O oh Lord. We cannot do this on our own. Allow for life change to take place this evening. In Jesus, your mighty name, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.